every year we have a 2 million housing deficit. 2 million people do not have housing every year, so every subsequent year. And currently, I think when you combine the main suppliers of housing, the developers, the affordable housing, the government, I think we only reach about maximum 250,000 houses maybe per year. This is Etta Medete. She is an architect and a lecturer at the University of Nairobi. So it's the supply versus what is the actual demand, the real demand, is so gaping. And we are never going to actually meet that demand unless you create solutions that are scalable and accessible and sustainable. Etta works for a company called BuildX Studio, an architecture, engineering and construction firm that focuses on human-centred design and which wants to help solve the housing shortages in Kenya. But it faces another huge challenge. Because if we were to actually meet the housing demand, we would kill all our supplies of quarry stones, because we build a lot in quarry stones here. We would pollute the environment with the materials that we're currently using. The materials that are considered desirable for home building in the East African nation are not good for the environment. But there are perfectly good alternatives, which in many ways are better. Which means they need to work to transform the construction industry in Kenya forever. This will mean changing building practices. It'll mean overcoming political restrictions. And it will mean a cultural shift in the perception of what it takes to make a home. And so it's, it's almost, it almost feels like it's an insurmountable task, but we believe it actually is surmountable if it's something that is sustainable and scalable and able to be replicated in different areas. Hello and welcome to Engineering Matters. I'm Alex Conacher. And I'm Rian Owen. In this episode, we've partnered with Autodesk Construction Solutions to look at a new approach to housing construction in Kenya. How a local architecture, engineering and construction firm, BuildX, is working with modern methods of construction, manufacturing modular units off-site, to produce housing on a scale and at a price that will help ease the deficit and hopefully provide homes for tens of thousands of Kenyans. And we will learn how a return to more traditional methods, especially timber, coupled with modern engineering, will help make the housing sector more sustainable, in more ways than one. But first we need to understand a little more about the situation in Kenya. Why is there an attachment to building materials that aren't good for the environment? Many people don't realize that Kenya is actually, an independent Kenya is a very young country. We are only 60 years independent. And so our notion of what materials are good have a very deep roots, have very deep roots in our colonial past. So we were here not too long ago in our tribal clans building in traditional materials, bio-based materials, in traditional ways, different, and we have so many different clans in Kenya. We have 46 tribes, very unique, different languages, different ways of living. Some are pastoralists, some are, uh, are farmers, and like, it's so unique the way that the different tribes used to work. And when colonial, uh, the British colonialists came, they sort of said, you know what? This is the colonial house. This is the master's house who's ruling over you. And this was a stone house. So when we gained independence not too long ago, everyone aspired 
to have that stone house. Etta compares the situation to a decision whether or not to use the transportation system when there is an aspirational aspect to the idea of owning a car. People don't necessarily buy cars because it's a better option. It's just because cycling or um, using low means of low carbon means of transport, even just walking sometimes. I mean, some people live really close to where they work, but they'd rather take a car because it has that prestige and that aspirational quality. Like, you know what? I have a job. I'm employed. I'm educated. This is how I show that. And so I think our attraction to materials goes much deeper in terms of our attraction to what is aspirational. So the desire for stone, concrete, steel and glass comes out of societal perceptions. And part of Buildex's mission is to attempt to change this through advocacy and by building demonstration projects. There will be more about this later in the episode. And that's why in our own view about how to mitigate that is one primarily to do with education and advocacy through built forms as well as through lecturing and teaching and sharing and showing that bio-based materials are not the poor man's materials. It is not because we don't have an alternative that we're using timber or brick or earth. And so that's, that I think is what is a major shift. It's almost like it's, we are being prescribed something which we, not, we, we think it's okay, but we don't think it's something that is modern and it's um, something that, that people in an urban area should aspire to. So we're tackling, we're tackling social perception almost as much as industry standards. These are problems that we need to start working to resolve as soon as possible. Africa looks set to enjoy enormous growth over the next century. Here's James Mitchell, co-founder of Buildex. He grew up in Glasgow, but has now made Kenya his home. Kenya is a really exciting and dynamic uh, country. It's, it's growing rapidly. Population growth world over at the moment is, is set to double in the next 30 years. And many of you may know that, that a huge part of that growth is going to be in the African continent. So with that, there's a lot more buildings being built in all sectors. But what I think uh, is often unappreciated, particularly in a city like Nairobi, is just how metropolitan and advanced the city actually is. Nairobi has its challenges like, like every city from an urban planning perspective, particularly as it grows. Uh, it's growing so rapidly that it, it almost kind of can't, can't quite keep up with itself in terms of, in terms of the, the planning side. But at the same time, the buildings that, that are being constructed are modern, advanced buildings and use many advanced methods of construction. And there are lessons to be learned from history. Actions taken by other parts of the world that in a modern context look like mistakes. The problem that we have is that many, we're also seeing many of the same mistakes being repeated that we've made uh, perhaps in, in, in other parts of the world where the growth has happened over the last century. A lot of that is down to things like urban planning, but also just the materials that we use. I think that from our, at least from our perspective, we're now entering a, a century and, and a time in, in our evolution where biomaterials, materials like uh, engineered timber, are the modern materials. They're the, the, the materials of the next century. Concrete and steel were the materials of the Industrial Revolution, and we have had many successes and advantages with those materials, but certainly not many that have benefited the environment and the planet. And so Nairobi continues to expand at a rapid pace with an incredible reliance on those two materials alone. And they've assumed an incredible sense of status and aspiration. 
to build your house in, in concrete or steel or to work and, and, and spend your time in buildings made from those materials is, is something of a, of a social uh, success story as well here. And so uh, a, big, a big aspect of what we want to change that I think is, is somewhat behind the, the curve a little bit in this part of the world uh, is really viewing biomaterials, uh, materials that are good for the planet and also just the way we look at our built environment in terms of green space and, and the, the types of spaces we want to live in, that needs to change. Um, and, and it's really ultimately a behavior change issue more than it is a, uh, a technical or engineering solutions issue. Two challenges then. Get affordable, mass-produced housing to ordinary Kenyans and completely change the materials that housing is typically built from. For Buildex, the main answer is timber. What is known as mass timber? Timber actually is, a, as I think in its engineered form for larger structures, is, is really quite a relatively new material. In the, only in the last sort of 15 to 20 years have we seen uh, a rapid rise in, in more advanced timber structures. And so the term mass timber really refers to, uh, to any kind of engineered timber which has been made up of, of multiple uh, smaller parts uh, of timber. Uh, so it could be things like uh, cross-laminated timber using timber planks or lamellas uh, at uh, perpendicular angles to each other to build up a large a large panel, or glue laminated timber beams uh, where timbers are, are, are laid in, in the same direction as each other to form uh, a larger piece that can support bigger spans. And so these materials have been engineered to achieve greater structural capabilities. To explain further, here is Nathan King. Nathan King is the Senior Industry Engagement Manager for the Autodesk Technology Centres. He focuses on architecture, engineering and construction. He provides technical support to Buildex Studio through Autodesk's Foundation Programme. The Autodesk Foundation supports the design and creation of innovative solutions to the world's most pressing social and environmental challenges. Renewed interest in mass timber, or engineering timber products, which is comprised of materials like or products like CLT, glue laminated timbers, other kind of laminations of multiple materials or multiple wood uh, components, is a really interesting development in that first there's global interest in utilizing these products. These products are able to make use of timber and byproduct of timber industry that otherwise would go into waste streams. And the way in which these panels and, and different beams and, and production methods are done, they afford new opportunities for timber, such as long span buildings. So a, a CLT, which is a cross laminated timber, is multiple layers that are cross-laminated using an adhesive. They provide dimensional stability, but also start to introduce much greater structural characteristics than a typical standalone wooden beam. And Nathan says that there has been a growing interest in mass timber construction internationally. This kind of engineering approach to the production of a wood product, uh, it's, it's been long-standing, but it's really uh, renewed there's really global renewed interest here. And by combining that with the policy considerations and also introducing it into new, new areas where timber might not be that common, uh, it's gonna afford really interesting design challenges and really interesting engineering challenges, all the way from fire resistivity and the ability for, for mass timber to resist 
fire, which is a key code consideration, but also unique in the properties of wood and that it encapsulates itself. One of the first things that people think of with wood in construction is the prospect of fire. But interestingly, there are some properties of wood that make it perform really well in these circumstances. The first is that it burns very predictably, and so structures can be designed accordingly. But also, the outside of a wooden beam will char substantially while preserving an inner core. This means that wood has some ability to self-protect during a fire. Design a member thick enough and you can preserve a structural core within the timber, giving people time to evacuate in an emergency. Nathan says the codes are changing to respond to this new realisation, but work is still needed. So given a certain mass, the wood is actually suitable for fire code. New global codes and, and understanding of the, national, the international building codes in which timber is limited in height, but these new engineered approaches are allowing buildings to increase in height, size, in terms of wood building, where normally we might be limited to steel and concrete. And where steel and concrete are, are relatively known, as is wood, the idea, desire to use less wood to create long span, the idea to use old growth and new growth wood to create engineered lumber present really interesting material and engineering considerations that I think it's kind of scratching, scratching the surface. It's some exciting new potential that uh, will probably lead to new engineering challenges, which hopefully will be exciting and interesting. The combination of old and new growth lumber is a trick that allows the engineer to get the benefits of sustainably managed forests and structural strength in one. The managed forests and the specific dimensional lumber that we're pretty accustomed to in the United States, but also is common worldwide, is typically spruce, pine, or fir, or created from a tree that grows fast. These are trees that come to maturity in 10 years or 20 years, and you can plan ahead and manage forest production on those timescales. They are softer materials that, that have lesser structural properties than trees that take longer to grow. So there's generally a correlation between growth time and like an oak tree, for example, takes, takes many, many years to achieve maturity. You might think of 50, 60 years, uh, but we still use hardwoods in construction and finishes. So there are some new engineering approaches that are considering the use of fast growing trees and slow growing trees as hybrids. In our research, uh, in my academic life, we call this uh, multi-species variation. And it goes back, you know, even, even in wagon wheels, for example, introducing new or, or different types uh, of wood based on what the structural performance characteristics are. So the hub, the spoke, and the wheel may be a different species. And if we start to think about this as an engineering opportunity, creating even longer spans, introducing the, the lower cost, faster growing wood, and hybrid with other woods, there may be new, new engineering opportunity. The main reason biomaterials such as mass timber and also things like brick or even coral are good is one we are all too familiar with, climate change. And as a tropical country dependent on agriculture, Kenya is at risk of the effects of climate change as much as anywhere. Etta has an example to illustrate the benefits of biomaterials. She thinks of it as a continuing system. So just the same way we see 
the banana we're eating, for example. We're eating a banana and you can throw it in the ground because you know it will go back to the earth and feed back into the system. Or somebody, uh, it might decompose and the ants will eat from it. You've used it, you've eaten it, you've got an energy from it. It's very utilitarian in terms of energy efficiency or like uh, from a human perspective, but you can easily dispose of it. So the problem we have now is that the materials we're using to build most of our cities and most of our spaces are things we are stealing from the earth. We cannot return them back and we also cannot recycle them back into the system. So this sort of broken cycles are what is creating this huge waste dumps. It's creating our, our oceans and our seas are getting polluted with plastic and with um, steel residues from the factories. So for me, I see bio-based as the future. One, because in Kenya especially, the gap is not too far yet, yet. Etta says that in many rural areas, they are still building with the right kind of materials because it's what is available there. It is what urban construction needs to get back to. It's almost like shifting the logic of how we used to build it traditionally and make it aspirational and, mix and make it also accessible, make the quality, improve the quality of the output. Even just one of the sites that we're working on now, it has so much red soil. It makes no sense to bring rock, go to a quarry somewhere where they're crushing and killing and pillaging the earth. Yet we can literally remove soil, create a beautiful water feature and build from it. And then if something happens and you need to sort of repurpose the space, we can take it back. And so it's this circular quality which has always been inherent in the way that we use materials. Although it still needs to be used responsibly. It's the same way we use our forests. We use the trees not just for shade, it is used for medicine, it is used for shelter, it is used for creating timber for wood but for that for you to use that timber you need to plant more or you need to find a way to prune it so i think that's how our cities should be and from a materials perspective there is one other major advantage which makes biomaterials objectively better for making a home comfortable sustainably and from the materials perspective especially in the tropics it is better for your in, for environmental sustainability so creating thermal comfort without having to use mechanical or, or uh, mechanical means like ACs. So it's, the reason it makes sense, especially in the tropics, is that the minute you bring aluminium, glass, steel as an envelope material, it means that you're almost doubling how much heat is getting into the space, which in, invariably means that you have to put AC to get the heat out. Yet we have very comfortable weather all year round. There are some times which are cold, and for me, cold is like 17 degrees. But most of the time, it's like 26 degrees like it is now. I think the, two days ago, um, it was 32 degrees. So we have great weather. What we actually need is to find ways to channel air and ventilation to keep it really cool. And bio-based materials have the qualities of being able to absorb the heat, as well as being able to almost filter absorb the heat like the way when, you, when you're dealing with thatch for example they're able to uh, absorb the heat but keep the rain out and allow ventilation and the porosity to go through the benefits are striking but there are other challenges to face with for example getting timber to market for james and buildex it is one of the main challenges facing their plans we, we know of countries that are already innovating in engineered timber, uh, Scandinavia, Austria, Canada, and so on, where they have uh, existing uh, substantial forest stocks and stocks that are, are managed on the whole very sustainably. In Kenya, we don't have that. 
Uh, we have historic uh, 20% tree cover. Um, we're currently at about 6%. Uh, however, we are surrounded by regions countries like uh, Uganda and Tanzania, which have substantially higher forest cover. Um, We also have a high reforestation potential in Kenya as well. This level of forestation is something that Kenya hopes to change with a sustainable forest management plan. Here's Nathan from Autodesk again. It is very enlightening and refreshing that Kenya has begun investment in the development of a sustainable forest management plan and other countries are sharing that movement. Forest management might not be the highest priority for some in the governments of, you know, in Kenya or in in other other countries in the region. However, uh, to achieve the supply or the demand that is needed for built infrastructure, we are left with choices, concrete, which is very water intensive, steel, which is energy intensive and also is often imported. Uh, from other countries, specifically China, Russia, and others. And then we're left, you know, the timber being the other main material system. And if we think holistically about it, timber might be a great solution to some of these issues around water scarcity. But at the same time, we need properly managed forests to meet that demand and to keep from exacerbating a problem of deforestation. And so the new policies are really geared towards developing a more sustainable forest industry so that it can support the demand without further diminishing precious resources in the area. But relying on political will can be risky, and Etta says that forestry has fallen victim to poor policymaking in the past. In the Kenyan context, timber has become overly politicised. So there's two ways in which we're trying to handle this. One is at a policy level, which is trying to remove the logging ban. So at the moment, we have a logging ban which prevents people from cutting trees. And it was put in place because of deforestation that's happening at a really unprecedented rate. However, what it did is that it created timber in the black market. So there's lots of like timber thefts and trees getting cut down in the night. But also it made people in the construction sector afraid of timber, so they moved to steel because it's now too expensive to use timber. So past policy in Kenya has simultaneously made timber an expensive black market commodity and made people afraid to grow commercial timber. If the government puts logging bans in place from time to time, would you invest in producing timber? This is something that needs to be overcome. But with the majority of the population employed in agriculture, there is potentially a great source of timber. 30% of our GDP comes from the agricultural sector. So a lot of the population are actually growers, so many people who are growing. But for them, the commercial incentives does not equate to growing a tree to sell to the construction sector. The demand is not enough, it doesn't provide them the, the money. And beyond that, when you grow food, even if you don't, you're not able to sell it, at least you have food. So when it comes to the supply side, we're trying to tackle it from policy, which is a whole other ball game. So you simultaneously need to create supply through confidence and political stability, while creating the demand that makes supplying the trees worthwhile. And this is a balancing act. We do not want the construction sector to create deforestation. We do not want to encourage people to cut down trees to feed this growing demand. We want to make sure that the people are already planting the trees that will will build our future. Even by the time we get the policy right, So there are political challenges to overcome, and lobbying is underway as Kenya is just now entering into its exceptionally long election process. 
that will see every political position go to the ballot. But on the engineering side too, there is work to be done to bring about this change. Buildex plans to create the demand for this product in two ways. By producing mass timber landmark buildings, the plans for which are still being finalised, and by producing economical but high quality housing stock for ordinary Kenyans. We fundamentally want to, to get to a point, at least within Kenya and ideally within the world, where timber is seen as an incredibly advanced, modern and aspirational material. Uh, but in order to do that, we need to, we need to look at what sectors that can really scale within. And so, in addition to landmark buildings, uh, and there are some incredible buildings now going up all over the world, uh, you know, 20 plus story skyscrapers uh, and so on, made, made from engineered timber products and other tall buildings in various sectors. But we also need it to be a material that can go beyond that. Uh, if we really want to reduce the carbon burden of our industry, most buildings are not landmark buildings. Uh, most buildings are houses or warehouses or office space, retail space, and so on. And so particularly in Kenya, there's a huge opportunity in the housing sector. The housing shortfall that Etta mentioned at the start of the podcast, which is getting worse by 200,000 per year. So the rate of construction that we're currently building at is just simply not able to keep up with the demand of a, of a growing population. And also, I think one thing that is, is particularly unique in Kenya is we really have a, a, an incredible growth in the, the middle class in Kenya. Uh, many, many African countries uh, still exist with a, a very tiny upper class of wealth and then the rest which make up the bottom of the pyramid. Uh, Kenya is really a, a very much a, a, an advancing country. It has a substantial middle class and therefore it has a lot of wealth creation and a lot of growth uh, economically, which means increasingly people are able to afford home ownership. And increasingly, people are moving to urban areas and driving demand for urban residential uh, solutions. There are still other challenges and barriers. It's not just the rate of construction, things like the affordability of homeowner financing and the ability to access it for many people. However, one of the areas that we're, we're interested in and where we see timber as a real solution is the ability to prefabricate housing, to adopt a modular opportunity and solution. So this is effectively homes made in a factory environment, then delivered to site in some kind of prefabricated form. And Buildex hopes to deliver at least 10,000 homes by 2030. Whether a full volume that, that is already fitted out with all the interior finishes or in a flat pack form uh, that can be quickly erected in site. But effectively, when it reaches site, it's something that can be rapidly assembled uh, with greater quality control than we could ever achieve in a site environment and a quicker finish and delivery time overall. As with any prefab solution, it benefits from immense economies of scale once everything is in place and the system is understood. So Buildex is focusing on the system itself, which can be used to create buildings rather than getting drawn into precisely what the end use building will look like. So I think one of, one of the things that's been really a really big learning curve for us as a practice um, has just been the fact that in some ways we're really we're not actually designing a building. What we're designing is a, a product or a system which can be used to create buildings. And so as, as architects and, and, and creative engineers uh, at BuildX, uh, we keep having to pull ourselves back from getting uh, too involved in exactly what the final building might look like. But the intent broadly is that this would be a, a, an urban typology, so it would be at a minimum 
four or five stories and possibly a lot taller uh, in its in its capabilities, maybe going as high as 10 or 12 stories eventually, but that is dictated by certain parameters and certain rules that a des uh, another architect or engineer has to play by, uh, in, in some ways a little bit like a, a, a kind of a big kid's Lego set. So where we can take these modules or these component panels, and as long as we play by a certain set of rules, we can stack them uh, in various different formations. We can create courtyard buildings with, with atriums. We can create uh, single uh, linear blocks. We can really, in, in many ways, create an infinite uh, number of different uh, designs. Fundamentally, the system is a structural envelope, the core elements of the building, and the team don't want their system to become too faceless or robotic. There still needs to be room for creativity, for diversity, uh, for just different visual aesthetics, depending on, on which part of the country or which part, of, which area of the city you're in. And so there's opportunities within that system for architects or engineers to specify different finish materials for the external cladding, to change the detailing or finishes around uh, interiors uh, and doors and circulation elements and, and so on. And much of the site-specific work uh, will not, you know, you know, be part of the package. So uh, how services are dealt with, mechanical, electrical, plumbing and so on, and how the building is, is oriented and designed for, for civils or for environmental uh, design. Those are things that need to be taken on by people that would then purchase that product. And so it's, uh, it's been an interesting way of working and I think it's, uh, it's, an, it's an interesting uh, solution that currently isn't on the market at the moment and that many engineers uh, or architects are not, are not used to, to, to taking on. And ultimately, I think that it has the potential to really unlock the delivery of green buildings at scale, whilst also solving numerous other social challenges like like shortage of housing, uh, particularly if we can get things like blanket permitting and blanket permissions for these types of buildings within within the, the, the country that we're in here and then look to scale it beyond that. But I can guarantee one thing, which is that in five or 10 years or even 30 years from now, looking back, it will have been a very different journey to what we predicted. And I think in that sense, we have to remain incredibly agile. I think we are going to set the right foundation. I'm not gonna say that in 10, 20 years, everyone is gonna be building from timber. And I, I'm being pretty realistic. For us, the, the, the systems that need to be in place for that to even happen, it's a lot more complicated. So as architects, you can dream of things, but until that dream is valid for the person earning less than, you know, $1 a day, or and that's the majority of the population, unless that's the reality, the change will happen very, very slowly. And so we almost have to become social advocates for the buildings that we're designing because we need to make sustainability, climate change accessible to a much larger population. A population that just does not have sustainability at the top of its priorities list. Their priority is educating their kids, it is having shelter and a roof over their head, it is what happens when I lose my job because of COVID. There's a lot more instabilities or issues of, of just being alive that they're dealing with. Um, and how can we sort of impact that? And that's why in, in BuildX we focus on healthcare, education, and affordable housing because we, we don't see architecture as an exclusive, exclusive sort of force, but actually something that can change the way that people perceive spaces and use spaces. But despite the challenges, Etta says she is optimistic about the future. 
I am optimistic that we're making the right step for our generation to act as a foundation for that shift to happen. Um, and it, will, it might take 10, 20, 30 years. It might take one, two, 500 buildings um, to hap- get that to happen. But I am also not arrogant enough to say that BuildX is going to build it. I think that we all need to learn that we can build this and that we can, we can build it together and make it scalable and accessible for everyone. Engineering Matters is a production of Rebe Media. Our producers are Alex Conacher, Bernadette Ballantyne, Rian Owen, Ross McPherson and Tim Sheehan. This episode was written and hosted by me, Alex Conacher. My co-host was Rian Owen. Sounds Engineering by Ross McPherson. Series Supervision by John Young. And our own housing solution is Rory Harris. Special thanks to Autodesk Construction Solutions and BuildX Studio. Thanks for listening. You can find us on all podcast apps, on our website, engineeringratters.reby.media, or share us on Twitter and LinkedIn.